before Lady Gaga, before Madonna, even before the one and only Marilyn Monroe, the quote-unquote blonde bombshell set Hollywood on fire. It was so much more than the color of one's hair. It was attitude. It was a lifestyle. It was an era that still lingers today. Taylor Orsi would write for The Atlantic, quote, Before Harlow, there wasn't such a thing as platinum blonde. Although people using hair lighteners like hydrogen peroxide was nothing new, there was no dye on the market that could make one's hair as blonde as jeans. Infamous neurotic Howard Hughes wanted to create a moniker for Harlow, as Mary Pickford had been America's sweetheart and Clara Bow had been the it girl, end quote. Jean Harlow would become the platinum blonde bombshell that started it all. Karina Longworth of You Must Remember This Podcast says, quote, In Hollywood, blonde women are often blank slates in which viewers are invited to project their own desires. The female blonde can become the female victim, whose promise seems to have been all the more promising when it's cut short, end quote. These next few episodes are all about the iconic women that have added to the allure of the platinum blonde sect and the tragedies that define their lives. Welcome. My name is Elizabeth Bougere, and I'm that person that, when studying the many facets of history, likes to peek behind the curtain, investigate the hidden passages, drop into the rabbit hole, or dare to walk in the shadows, because we all know that's where the good stories can be found. Take a listen, then, to discover what dark or peculiar pieces of American history can be found this week from my bag of bones. After the film Platinum Blonde was released in 1931, Jean Harlow became the on-screen persona every woman wanted to be and every man wanted to have. Suddenly, peroxide sold out everywhere, and hair colorists had to up their whole white blonde game. Library Point blog adds, quote, Blonde hair was not the only requirement for the blonde bombshell. The blonde bombshell, whether playing the femme fatale, such as Barbara Stanwyck in Double Indemnity, the girl next door, such as Betty Grable in How to Marry a Millionaire, or the dumb blonde, such as Marilyn Monroe in Lorelei Lee in Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, was beautiful and sensual, and at times very risque. These women were adored by men and emulated by women. End quote. Known as the baby for the first five years of her life, the name Jean Harlow actually belonged to her mother. Harlene Harlow Carpenter was born on March 3, 1911. Her mother, who came from wealth, was given away by her father into a prearranged marriage to a Midwestern hardworking, average dentist, Abraham Carpenter. Even though young Jean resented the marriage, she stayed with him until 1922. The divorce was uncontested, and Harlene would rarely see her father in later years. It was actually Mama Jean who wanted a career in film, and she and her daughter moved to Hollywood in hopes Jean would become a famous actress. Mama Jean's dreams were shattered when Hollywood told her she was too old and her father told her to get back to the Midwest or he would cut off her finances. So she did. During her freshman year in high school, Harlene met Charles McGrew III. He was heir to a large fortune. They were married in 1927. 
Two months later, Charles turned 21 and began receiving part of his inheritance. The couple moved to Beverly Hills, Los Angeles and lived the high life. They mingled with high society and spent most of their time partying and drinking. At one of the parties, Harlene would meet Rosalie Roy. She was an actress signed with Fox Studios. The two became fast friends, and one afternoon, when she needed a ride to the studio, Harlene offered. She drove her friend over, dropping her off, and then pulled into a parking spot to wait. While she waited, she was approached by Fox executives. They offered her a screening on the spot, because that's not creepy at all, and Harlene would tell them that she wasn't interested. They handed her a pass and encouraged her to go over to Central Casting anyway, just to check it out. She shrugged it off, but when her friend Rosalie and her starstruck mother found out, she was strongly encouraged to go. She returned to the Fox lot. She would go to Central Casting, curious but unimpressed and not really interested. She signed in using her mother's maiden name, Jean Harlow. Her screen test produced offers almost immediately, and she turned them all down. Finally, after a reprimand from her mother, she accepted one. The first film was Honor Bound in 1928. She was an unbilled extra and was paid $7 for the day, complete with a boxed lunch. This led to other small parts and an increase in pay. And then, in December of 1928, she was offered a five-year contract with Hal Roach Studios for $100 per week. She would appear in 16 films and shorts with no billing, but not too long into things, much to her mother's dismay, Harleen, now known as Jean, asked to be released from her contract. She didn't need the money, and her husband didn't want an actress for a wife. Rumor has it, she tore up her contract and threw it at director Hal Roach himself, wanting to save her marriage instead of becoming a starlet. Her mother, the authentic Jean, was livid. Mother Jean, if you remember, wanted stardom for herself. But since that didn't happen, the least her daughter could do was let her experience it vicariously. She felt her daughter was throwing away an opportunity for all the best things. It was her belief that she should get out of the marriage and go after the fame. Following her mother's advice, sometimes said as forceful, she would leave her husband in June of 1929, and a divorce would soon follow. Her mother jumped at the chance to move in and guide her daughter's career literally moving back to California with her own new husband. Now, because she did need the money, she was a little more compliant and willing to take the roles offered to her. David Sten would write in his book, Bombshell, The Life and Death of Jean Harlow, quote, In those days, it usually took four things to become a movie goddess. Stunning looks, raw sex appeal, a willingness to do what you were told, and ruthless ambition. Harleen Carpenter, significantly named Jean Harlow, had it all in abundance, except for the ambition, and that she didn't need because Mama Jean had enough for both of them, end quote. Enter Howard Hughes. Determined to be the best producer in movies and a vast fortune behind him to help with the bumbling process, he would explode onto Hollywood in a big way. His first undertaking was Hell's Angels. The film starred Ben Lyon, James Hall, and Norwegian actress Greta Neeson. The film was initially shot, or mostly shot, as a silent film. But because it took so long to complete, it slipped into the talkie era and would seem foolish not to release it as a sound film. 
Hughes would make the decision to go back and reshoot converting the entire film to sound. This would end up being Jean Harlow's big break. The original actress cast as the part of Helen was Greta Neeson, and her Norwegian accent was too thick to transfer over to the talking picture. Greta out, Harlow in. That's Hollywood. Hell's Angels was released on May 27, 1930, and became the highest-grossing film of the year, nowhere near making Hughes a profit, or breaking even for that matter, but it did make Harlow an instant success. In Hell's Angels, she spoke the now-famous line, quote, Would you be shocked if I changed into something more comfortable? End quote. Jean's appearance in Hell's Angels solidified her role as America's new sex symbol. Harlow was now a raging success, but being under contract with Hughes, she was not really doing any more work. She would be loaned out to other studios when Hughes didn't have her booked promoting Hell's Angels. Jean Harlow was gaining a reputation for being somewhat combative because she really didn't want to be doing the work and was not a very good actress, but her attitude, swagger, and physique was more than enough to keep her in the spotlight. Hughes wanted to capitalize on her strengths. He wanted publicity that would stick. While Harlene Carpenter was born a beautiful ash blonde for this new image of Jean Harlow, she needed something a bit more unique. Hughes dubbed her the Platinum Blonde. The Guardian would write, quote, Jean Harlow was the first of Hollywood's Platinum Blondes and appeared in film after film as a tough, wisecracking, tempestuous young woman. End quote. Alfred Pagano was the hairdresser to the stars and would comment, quote, I used to bleach her hair and make it platinum blonde. We used peroxide, ammonia, Clorox, and Lux Flakes. End quote. She had a standing Sunday appointment and would sometimes add Clorox to the roots in between. Yes, Clorox bleach. Yes, the same Clorox that's available today. P.S. Please do not try this at home. Eventually, this harmful practice was the cause of Jean's eventual hair loss. Before her death, she would pull back on the white blonde to a less abrasive, softer blonde. But just before she fell ill, she had started wearing wigs. Because of her new moniker, she was hired to play across from Loretta Young in a film titled Gallagher. In order to capitalize on the newly acquired fame of Hell's Angels' leading lady, they changed the name to Platinum Blonde. The film didn't fare very well. The New York American expressed some disappointment, writing, quote, For all her top billing, Jean Harlow has very little to do, and Loretta Young even less. To say they are competent to the picture's requirements is only a mild compliment, end quote. Variety wrote that it offered, quote, a lot of light-pleasing comedy and a cast that's tops, but described it as only innocuously spicy, end quote. The New York Daily Mirror lauded it as, quote, one of the gayest, sauciest comedies you've ever seen, end quote. Despite or in spite of the reviews, Jean Harlow was cemented in Hollywood legend forever. Writer and producer Paul Byrne would see her potential and wanted to help her advance her career. They would form a friendship that would later become serious. He would negotiate borrowing Harlow for a film in 1932, followed by a 10-week personal appearance tour. She was so popular and packed out every venue she was scheduled for, they had to extend the tour by an additional six weeks. 
Byrne witnessed firsthand her growing fan base and tried to encourage MGM to buy out her contract. L.B. Mayer, head of MGM, didn't care for her type of girl, so was not so inclined. Byrne pressed ahead to get Irving Thalberg, who was considered MGM's boy wonder, to consent. On March 3, 1932, Jean Harlow's birthday, she was signed on with MGM and they were going to get their money's worth. She was given the juiciest roles that would accentuate not only her curves and reluctance to wear undergarments, but also that snarky comedic side that audiences, men and women alike, couldn't get enough of. Side note, four months after she came over to the MGM lot, she and Byrne were married on July 2nd, 1932, and it's Hollywood, so no one batted an eye at their 22-year age difference. Only two months after that, on September 5th, her new husband was found naked in a pool of blood, dead. He had a gunshot wound to the head. There was a lot of controversy around the death, and of course, Harlow would be considered a suspect. It was determined a suicide, and the case was hushed and closed. Janine Bassinger would write for the New York Times, quote, Her second marriage made little sense to anyone who knew her groom. He was rumored to be sexually dysfunctional or, at the very least, uninterested where women were concerned. Nevertheless, Harlow married Byrne in a lavish MGM-sanctioned wedding ceremony, end quote. Later, it is believed that the MGM fixers arranged for the death to look like a suicide. In order not to smudge their starlet's persona as not being able to keep her man, they would release an autopsy report that would read in part that Byrne had, quote, physical conditions which left him unfit for matrimony, end quote. It was important that Harlow be portrayed as the helpless victim. Ultimately, it is suspected his former common-law wife was the actual culprit, because she ended up committing suicide herself not long after, as in only five days after. MGM, being the handlers they are, launched a huge publicity campaign to try and smooth over the rough edges from Harlow and raise her to a refined MGM-worthy all-American girl. This was happening during the filming of Red Dust, her second film with Clark Gable, which was anything but a girl-next-door persona. They had their hands full with this one, and not too long after the affairs of her husband's estate were put to rest, she began a different affair with boxer Max Bayer, who, though separated, was still married to actress Dorothy Dunbar. MGM fixers to the rescue. They didn't want Harlow in the headlines again, so they arranged a public marriage between cinematographer Harry Rawson and Harlow. Rawson would be remembered for his five Academy Award nominations for his cinematography work and his groundbreaking input into the filming of Wizard of Oz and Singing in the Rain. The newlywed couple would barely spend time in each other's company, and three weeks after their marriage, Harlow had to have her appendix removed. Since Byrne's death, she was drinking heavily, and it made it more difficult for her to heal from the surgery. She would continue to convalesce at her mother's home, which was near the MGM studios. Jean eventually begged to be allowed to return to work, probably just to get away from her mother, and it was granted. The marriage of Rawson and Harlow would quietly end in divorce, with Harlow stating the reason for the separation was that he was, quote, rude, sullen, and irritable. It was March of 1935, and Jean Harlow was single once more. Harlow was Hollywood gold. 
she would be paired with Clark Gable for 12 films. By 1933, she was one of the hottest commodities, making her studio millions with every picture. She was getting top billing and equaled to her fellow female stars such as Greta Garbo and Joan Crawford. Actor Jimmy Stewart would later tell the story of a scene in a car with Harlow in the movie Wife vs. Secretary, saying, quote, Clarence Brown, the director, wasn't too pleased by the way I did the smooching. He made us repeat that scene about a half a dozen times. I botched it up on purpose. That teen Harlow sure was a good kisser. I realized that until then, I had never really been kissed, end quote. In 1934, on the set of Reckless, which, by the way, would be her first musical which she wasn't allowed to sing on, she would meet actor William Powell. Powell, recently divorced from Carol Lombard, was in no rush to jump into matrimony, but it's said that Harlow and Powell were head over heels in love for one another. Both camps would claim that they had been engaged for two years, but he did not want to pull the marital trigger. Side note. Curiously, it wasn't until 1935 that Jean legally changed her name to Jean Harlow. I bet that drove the DMV crazy. For the film Susie, Harlow would get top billing for the first time and then every other time over such stars as Cary Grant, Spencer Tracy, Myrna Loy, and even fiancé William Powell. She would go on to film Riff Raff and then Libeled Lady. It was in this film the internal damage was beginning to make an outward appearance. It was clear that Harlow was putting on weight, which we now know was fluid retention. She would begin to complain of stomach trouble, but the doctors attributed it to the flu. She would be sent home to recover, thinking nothing more of it. Finally, on one instance, as things worsened, a doctor was called. He assumed the problem was gallstones and treated her for that, but she did not improve. On June 3, 1937, Harlow reportedly felt better and was expected to return to set. Jean was bloated, gray-faced, and suddenly ill on the set of Saratoga, but she still showed up, put in all the work, even though she was dying inside. Literally. By this time, her kidneys were failing and fluid was backing up in her system. Her breath and hair would smell rancid, like urine. Her legs and abdomen would be swelling with bacterial liquid waste, and to make matters worse, she couldn't expel it the normal way, even if she wanted. Nausea and fatigue left her bedridden and ultimately doubling in size. The treatment she had been given was actually speeding up her death. When she finally passed out, profusely sweating, she was again rushed to the hospital where they attempted blood transfusions and an oxygen tent, all to no avail. The person probably closest to a best friend, Clark Gable, would say, quote, It was like kissing a dead person, a rotting person, end quote. The Los Angeles Times would print, quote, Miss Harlow soon responded favorably to treatment and was thought well on the road to recovery when she lapsed into a coma last night. That was June 6th, and the next day was pronounced dead. The doctors had shaved her head of the hair that once defined her as an icon possibly in preparation for surgery, that never came. Journalist Tracy Orsi would write, quote, Her medical history, paired next to her filmography, reads like a Greek tragedy. She reportedly contracted polio, meningitis, and scarlet fever before the age of 16. She then had pneumonia, two abortions, an appendectomy, multiple bouts of influenza, and a bad reaction to wisdom teeth extraction, 
all while carrying the crown of the hottest starlet in Hollywood. She remained on set working up to two weeks before her death. End quote. In 1937, the film Personal Property, co-starring Robert Taylor, would be her final completed movie. Officially, Harlow died of kidney failure, or nephritis. The basic gist of nephritis is a buildup of toxins over time because the body can't process waste. This can happen over the course of years without much indication, since kidneys can still do their job with only 10% functionality. And since her history with scarlet fever, kidney failure is apparently one of the long-term side effects. Her mother, stepfather, and fiancé, William Powell, were at her bedside when she died. The Daily Mirror would post the following day, quote, June 8, 1937, Jean Harlow dead. Powell held her hand. Hollywood's blonde bombshell Jean Harlow died fighting for her life under an oxygen tent in the Good Samaritan Hospital here today. She was 26. End quote. Powell would purchase her multicolored marble mausoleum and it was built to accommodate space for her mother and for him when William passed away. Side note, William Powell would end up marrying again and eventually be buried beside his one and only child, not beside Ms. Harlow. Side note to that side note, as part of her legacy, Jean Harlow would be the first actress to appear on the cover of Life magazine, and among other things, she is said to have partially inspired the iconic Batman character, Catwoman. Creator Bob Kane once said that when he was a young, impressionable boy, Harlow, quote, seemed to personify feminine pultritude at its most sensuous, end quote. Harlow once commented that if it weren't for her hair, quote, Hollywood wouldn't know I'm alive, end quote. Clark Gable would say of his friend, quote, she didn't want to be famous, she wanted to be happy, end quote. Hey everyone, it's Elizabeth Bougeret here with Bag of Bones, and I have to tell you I am so excited to have Lumi deodorant as part of the Bag of Bones family. I aggressively campaigned to get Lumi on this podcast and my website, that's how much I love their products. They are all natural, and just because they're all natural doesn't mean they have to smell like dirt or baking powder. In fact, they don't even use baking powder. If you're tired of the store-bought brands that aren't doing their job and are ready to try something completely different in an assortment of scents, please give this a try. They have products for men and women, and they go far beyond just underarm deodorant. You have nothing to lose with their money-back guarantee, and when you use our direct link found in the show notes, you'll get free shipping on any order of $25 or more. Click the link in the show notes. Just give Lumi a try. Your friends and family will thank me later. Thelma Todd, born July 29, 1906, in Lawrence, Massachusetts, may have had an inkling to become a movie star of the silver screen, but her practical side found her working at the local Woolworth and studying to become a schoolteacher. She would continue to take some modeling gigs as a side hustle, and in 1926, after entering a beauty pageant or two, found herself in the running for Miss Massachusetts. It just so happened that Paramount Pictures had scouts out and about searching for the next bit of talent they could exploit. Um, I mean, train up and make a big star. 
After seeing some of her modeling photos, Ms. Todd was invited to come and participate in a new training program the studio was offering. Not only did the 18-year-old win the title of Miss Massachusetts of 1925, but tossed her practical plans aside and packed her bags heading to New York to Paramount's Long Island studio to study being a big star. The program Paramount was offering would teach the young impressionables about manners and etiquette, photograph modeling techniques, and screen performance skills, all culminating to the final exam, a motion picture called Fascinating Youth. Side note, what they didn't mention, along with the whole you've been chosen from the thousands angle, they waited to drop the, oh, and it's going to cost you $500 to attend. All the kids who went through the training did go on to produce a film, and from this film, Selma was discovered and offered a one-year contract with Paramount. Side note to the side note, of the 16 teens that went on to the training with her, only one other besides herself went on to a movie career, Charles Buddy Rogers, who would be best known as being, quote, America's boyfriend, end quote. He would go on to be in over 50 films and have a long, happy 42-year marriage to actress Mary Pickford. The Paramount Pictures School did not offer its services after this first and only beta test. Thelma Todd was a shoe-in for the comedy roles and was even considered for the lead role in Hell's Angels, which, as we know, would be offered and accepted by Jean Harlow. She found plenty of work as she was in constant demand and loaned out regularly to other studios. And even though she was bringing the studio a nice return on their investment, Paramount opted not to renew her contract. Thelma would later say she believed she was let go because she refused to play the quote-unquote casting couch game with top executives who were eager to fill her glass with endless champagne. Here's an interesting fact I found out for the story. For Thelma's next contract, she went with First National Studios. In the fine print, it stated that if she gained more than three pounds or lost more than six pounds, the studio reserved the right to terminate the contract. Upon signing, Thelma was a healthy 122 pounds. She was earning $250 per week and would often be seen in the nightclubs and restaurants wearing the latest fashions, laughing and chatting with everyone, becoming known as the life of the party. Her sparkling wit, upbeat nature drew people to her. Her career was holding steady as the studios transitioned from the silent era to the talkies. She was signed to the very first Laurel and Hardy talking film. Her chemistry and perfect comedic timing as a straight woman made her a regular in the Laurel and Hardy dynasty and would also make her a perfect fit for the Marx Brothers, Buster Keaton, and Jimmy Durante movies as well. Under the guidance of her producer, Hal Roach, he starred Todd with Zazu Pitts in a series of comedy shorts. In their first short, the 27-minute film called Let's Do Things, here Todd would premiere the look that would later take Jean Harlow to iconic stardom. While never getting the same credit as Jean Harlow, Thelma would don the bleached white hairstyles, outfits that accentuated her curves, and even the demeanor that Harlow would later be known for. Women in comedy were often overlooked for women who were cast in dramatic roles. She therefore wondered if she should expand her repertoire and attempt to venture into more serious roles, but also knew that many of these women would be exploited because of their looks. She would say, quote, Building on beauty seems to me to be the worst thing any girl can do. End quote. 
1930, director Roland West would approach Thelma Todd and, as if reading her mind, offered her the opportunity to recreate her brand and cast a wider net for dramatic roles. He cast her in one of his films, Corsair, and would boost her confidence telling her he believed she was meant for bigger things and how beautiful she was. So, it shouldn't be much of a surprise that despite there being 20 years difference in their age, and that he was already married, Thelma fell head over heels in love with him, and they began an affair. He began her transformation by changing her name. He instructed the entire cast and crew to address her as Allison Lloyd. He would say, quote, Thelma Todd is dead as far as we're concerned, end quote. At the wrap of the film, Roland was also ready to wrap up the affair with his starlet. For some time, the affair became public knowledge, and so Roland felt the best way to end it was also through public knowledge. He would tell gossip columnist Luella Parsons that he would not be leaving his wife and was breaking things off with Thelma by taking a long road trip to, quote, get it out of his system, end quote. To make matters worse, her dramatic debut was met with indifference. Her audience made it clear they'd rather have the comedic Thelma over the dramatic Allison. From here, Thelma would get entangled with Pat DeSico. He was charming and handsome, and Thelma was healing from a broken heart, so it didn't take much for him to seem like the answer to her pain. After only four months, they tied the knot. It took less than a month of marriage for DeSico's true character to reveal itself. He was prone to fits of violence, and the family fortune made from broccoli, of all things, had long been squandered away. By 1933, Thelma had gone to the UK for a film and knew her marriage was all but over. Their fights had made headlines, and from that point, everything she did was brought under the spotlight. While overseas, she changed her will to leave her husband only one dollar, so he could not contest the will, but would soon file divorce. She would claim the divorce was because of his violent and surly attitude, which anyone who was around them could attest to. But DeSico took the opportunity to spin the situation in his favor, saying that Thelma put her career before their marriage. He would tell the press, quote, I allowed her to get the divorce so she wouldn't injure her career. She was not the domestic type at all, end quote. This is where Roland West comes back into the picture, apparently not getting it out of his system. He still didn't want to leave his wife, also did not want to be without Thelma. They settled into a commitment of another kind. They started a business together. In 1934, Roland and Todd purchased a three-story building on the Pacific Coast Highway. On the middle floor, he created two apartments which were connected in the middle by a drawing room. He would use one, she would use the other. On the bottom floor, a restaurant was built out. Thelma Todd's Sidewalk Cafe would open to the public in August of 1934. The top floor of the building was turned into a private nightclub of sorts called Joya, which included a hexagon-shaped dance floor and bandstand. In order to keep her affair on the up-and-up, so to speak, she also had a mansion overlooking the restaurant up the hill about a block away. In 1935, Thelma would receive extortion letters that she believed were backed by the mob. Her other physical residence was robbed, making off with over $3,000 worth of items. These letters and the break-in terrified her, and she reported them to the FBI, hired bodyguards, and made sure she was protected while working at the sidewalk cafe. 
In December of 1935, Thelma would attend a party given in her honor by up-and-coming star Ida Lupino. Thelma Todd and her mother Alice would arrive for dining and dancing. Her former husband, Pat DeSico, had been invited with Thelma's blessing, believing that bygones were bygones. He snubbed the invitation and instead was seen dancing with another actress on the floor below the party. Lupino was insulted, but Thelma chose not to let it spoil her evening. Roland West decided not to go to the party, saying he had work to do at the cafe, but saw her and her mother into the chauffeured limo, reminding her not to stay out too late and not to drink too much. That would be the last time, he says, he would see her alive. She was driven home from the party, completely inebriated, in the early hours by her chauffeur, Ernest O. Peters, who was usually West's chauffeur. Upon their arrival to the home, she declined an escort to the door, something she'd never done before. Her body was discovered the next Monday morning by the maid, May Whitehead, slumped over the steering wheel of her 35 Lincoln Phaeton convertible in Roland's garage, having been dead for approximately 24 hours. The maid reported that blood was on Thelma's face around her nose and the car was not running. She had opened the passenger door to deposit some packages before she noticed the body and the already opened driver's side door. The L.A. Times would take it upon themselves to add some graphic content, such as, quote, Coagulated blood marred the screen comedian's features and stained her mauve and silver evening gown and her expensive mink coat when she was found. Her blonde locks pathetically awry in the front seat of her automobile in the garage of Roland West, end quote. Thelma's mother, upon arriving at the scene surrounded by police and reporters, cried foul, convinced that she had been murdered. But the police, however, believed that she had accidentally fallen asleep at the wheel with the motor running, dying of asphyxiation due to carbon monoxide. The blonde Venus of Hollywood was dead. She was 29 years old. Los Angeles Times writes, quote, December 16, 1935, missing since Saturday night, beautiful blonde Thelma Todd, famous screen actress, found dead today behind the wheel of an automobile at her beach home in Santa Monica, end quote. However, once the body was examined at the morgue, the coroner noticed a loose crown in her mouth and he called for an inquiry. Some say cracked ribs were also discovered, but I couldn't find that in the autopsy report anywhere. Something I'm quite sure they'd want to take note of. The coroner did say, quote, The autopsy showed monoxide poison to the extent of 70% of total saturation in her blood. There may have been other contributing causes, but that definitely was the major factor, end quote. After intensive questioning of all the key players, the police reported that there was no evidence that there was foul play. No suicide note, there was no evidence of a struggle, no evidence that a murder had taken place, and every indication that it was an accidental suicide. She was still wearing her full-length mink coat, and about $20,000 worth of diamonds and other jewelry were still on her person. The L.A. coroner justified the blood on her face as an instance that sometimes just happens when a person dies, or she hit her nose on the steering wheel when she fell forward unconscious. This was also the explanation for the loose tooth. And yet, the coroner's jury was not yet willing to sign off on the obvious. They would come back with an inconclusive verdict. Quote, 
From the evidence submitted to the jury, the death of the deceased appears to have been accidental, but we recommend further investigation to be made in this case by proper authorities. End quote. For example, there's a time gap. For when she was dropped off in front of her home, which was also the restaurant, but ends up in her boyfriend's garage blocks away. She was drunk, it was winter, and while it is reported that her shoes were scuffed and dirty, according to a policeman, quote, they gave the appearance or indication that she had walked quite some distance on cement, end quote, no one believed she would walk the distance to the garage, which, just so you know, was 271 hillside steps up. And, for example, one of the theories was that she had forgotten or lost her key to the apartment, so she would go find one of her cars, sit in it to keep warm, and accidentally fell asleep. The trip up to that story is contained in her purse found at the crime scene. Inside it was a coin purse, and inside that, the key to the apartment. Then there was Earl Cardner who was the night watchman for the home and should have walked past the crime scene at least 15 times according to his usual route. But Carter, who was employed by West, would say that he did not see or hear anything out of the ordinary. Enter the grand jury investigation. The newspaper headlines ran everything from fact to blatant fiction in order to keep the papers selling. All of the usual suspects were subpoenaed and requested an appearance. Ronald West, former husband Pat DeSico, and now even jilted wife Jewel West were in the suspect pool. At the grand jury, 17-year-old Ida Lupino was brought to the stand and her testimony sent the trial on its head. She would reveal to the intimate court setting that Thelma had confessed to her at the party at the Trocadero that she had been seeing and was now in love with a man who lived in San Francisco. This cast new shadows on the well-known possessive and controlling Roland West, but it didn't hold. When Roland West took the stand, he altered his original view that he too agreed it was an accident, that she had fallen asleep in her car. He would complain that he was in desperate fear for his life. He was in deep mourning for the love of his life and was afraid to leave his apartment above the restaurant for, quote, some deranged person might come here for the express purpose of killing me. End quote. Thelma's lawyer would offer that she had been afraid of mobsters ever since the break-in, and even though they caught the person who admitted to the extortion, she was still fearful, leaving the door wide open for press to allow mob-related conspiracy theories to worm their way into the proceedings. This is where I should probably offer that both Roland West and Pat DeSico had ties to the movie industry mobs. After weeks, the jury's foreman, George Rochester, would scold the court, saying, quote, Some of those who appear the most mute, most dumb, apparently are deliberately concealing facts. Potent Hollywood interests have tempted to block the probe into Todd's death from the beginning, end quote. Prosecutors would follow up that statement to the paper, saying, quote, Falsehoods have been told by certain witnesses inside the grand jury room. Someone, we think, knows how Thelma Todd died. None of the apparent facts smooth out, end quote. But before it was all over, Thelma Todd's mother, Alice, would be convinced that her daughter's death truly was an accident, and she would publicly call out for an end to the politics surrounding the investigation as a fiasco. Quote, I am certainly convinced that my daughter's death was an accident, 
If I am satisfied, I don't see why anyone else is interested. End quote. Finally, after a long four weeks, a ridiculous abuse of taxpayers' dollars, on January 8th, the Homicide Bureau ended the grand jury investigation. The case of the death of Thelma Todd was officially closed. It was ruled, quote, an accident with possible suicidal tendencies, end quote. The case would be closed, but to many, not solved. Side note, and this is a big side note, on his deathbed, Roland West would confess to killing Thelma Todd. He would say he accidentally locked her in his garage. But when he would retell the stories, they did not line up with the established timeline and were full of contradictions. However, someone else did know the truth. Hal Roach, the director that both Todd and West worked with for several years, would finally confess his long-held secret to the authors of Fallen Angels, Marvin Wolf, and Catherine Mader. Without going into depth of each controversy, or the whys for a major cover-up, here is the gist of the truth. On the night of her death, there was an argument. Roach would say, quote, Roland West was very possessive, very controlling. He told Thelma that she was to be back by 2 a.m. She said she'd come and go as she pleased. They had a little argument about it, and then Thelma left for the party, end quote. When a friend slash spy called West around 2.30 a.m. to tell him that Thelma was only just now leaving, he was furious. He got out of bed and went to lock her apartment door from the inside. Her key would not work. When Thelma Todd arrived, completely inebriated, she declined an escort to her door from the chauffeur because she knew there was about to be an argument. When Todd arrived at her locked door, she pounded and screamed at it, and a shouting match with West ensued through the locked door. West said he'd unlock the door if she agreed not to go to any more parties. She said she'd go to any party she pleased. In fact, Roach said, quote, she was invited to one later that day at Miss Wallace Ford's, and she said she'd just go to that party right now, end quote. The story continues that she left the door and started up the 271 steps to the garage. Soon after, West was behind her. By the time he caught up to her, she was already in the car, turning over the engine. Continuing the fight, he tells her to get out of the car. She's not going anywhere. She does not agree. So he ran behind her, shut the garage door, and locked it. Roach would say, quote, He wasn't thinking about carbon monoxide just about teaching her a lesson about who was boss. So he left her and went back to bed, end quote. The next morning, he went back to the garage expecting to find a hungover but remorseful girlfriend. Instead, found her body. He didn't know what to do. Hal Roach would say, quote, so he did nothing. He closed the door but didn't lock it, end quote. He went back to his apartment and pretended to start the day all over again. All that day, Sunday, when numerous calls came in for her, he simply responded he didn't know where she was. He let her body sit in that car alone for a whole day and an additional night. Roach would confess, quote, if he really hadn't known where she was, 
he would have been calling all over trying to find her. That's the kind of man he was, end quote. It was shortly after the cover-up began. Thelma Todd would appear in around 120 films and shorts throughout her career. She had a small memorial service and was cremated. When her mother passed away in 1969, Todd's remains were placed in her mother's casket and buried in her hometown of Lawrence, Massachusetts. Hello listeners, we are Katie, Amber, Kylie, and Matt, and we are the hosts of Save Me an Isle Seat, a show that talks about musicals in an understandable and relatable way. If you like musicals or theater in general, or if you're interested in them but don't know where to start, we'd love to help introduce you. Come find us wherever you listen to your podcasts. Or on our website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. And we'll be sure to save you an aisle seat. In her brief, tragic career, Peg Entwistle became a cautionary tale for Hollywood hopefuls and a haunted tale of tragedy surrounding the legendary Hollywood sign. Millicent Lillian Entwistle was born in Wales in 1908, her acting father moved her to New York in 1913. In 1921, she fell in love with Broadway and the particular production called Peg, Oh My Heart, and decided to be called forevermore Peg. Peg's father died, leaving her and her two younger half-brothers orphans. They were shipped to Ohio to her uncle's care. In 1923, her family moved to Los Angeles in Beechwood Canyon seeking a warmer climate. They made their home and watched as Sin City Hollywood attempted to transform itself into the Hollywood of glamour and fame to all who followed the light from the 50-foot Hollywood sign. Karina Longworth would say, quote, Peg was a Broadway baby with an English accent dumped into the Wild West, end quote. Believing that she was meant to be on a Broadway stage, despite the whispering of Hollywood at her feet, she moved back to New York. She was studying her craft at the New York Theater Guild when Boston would call her away with the promise of a six-month contract with the Boston Repertory Company. She was rapidly making a name for herself. In January of 1926, Betty Davis, who was 17 at the time, was enraptured with her performance as Hedwig in the stage production of Ibsen's The Wild Duck in Boston prior to her fame and was awestruck with her talent. Davis would go on to claim that it was, quote, that performance, that experience of watching an actress her own age with whom she identified create a life on stage before her eyes, end quote, that made her go on to pursue her acting career. After eight months with a grueling schedule of 12 performances a week, she retreated back to New York. Her performances in the astounding success of the touring play titled Tommy prompted New York Times to dub her, quote, the it girl of the stage. In 1927, Peg fell in love and eloped with actor Robert Keith, who was 10 years her senior. Two days into her brand new marriage with her brand new husband, she discovers she is a brand new stepmother to a son that Robert neglected to mention, nor the fact that she was his second wife nor the fact that he was wanted by officials for years of child support back payments, nor the fact that he really wasn't into working that much, and before long, Peg was working to support herself and her husband and son and her mother-in-law. The run of Tommy ended, and unfortunately, the next role Peg was up for flopped. It was around this time she found out 
she was pregnant. Money was tight, and she mentions the $160 illegal abortion was a high price to pay, calling it a, quote, dear sum of money, but also would admit in a letter to her aunt, quote, needless to say, the last thing I want in this world is a child. I wouldn't do that for any man. I'm positively rabid on the subject. I've tried all my life to fight it, but it gets worse all the time, end quote. In 1929, she and her husband were invited to join the touring New York's Theater Guild. While on the surface, Peg finally had reached her dream-come-true moment, being aligned with the prestigious Guild, until her husband, Robert Keith, was presented with a warrant for his arrest. He was faced with a choice of paying the over $1,000 fees he owed, or got to go straight to jail. Do not pass go, do not collect $200. Even though being a part of the prestigious New York Guild, the pay was extremely low. So, there was nothing to do but allow Keith to go to jail. She was able to secure a loan against her future performances to bail her husband out of jail so he could resume the tour. In 1928, Keith was arrested for drunk driving and then jumped bail by not appearing for his court date. And then, on one of his drunken outbursts, He attacked Peg, abusing her and ripping out her hair. He continued with his poor drunken behavior, and before the tour had come to a close, Keith was fired. Their manage was beyond saving, and once the tour made it to Los Angeles in 1929, Peg filed for divorce. Side note, Robert Keith already had a new wife before the divorce was even finalized. By rave reviews of her performances and her dedication to the Guild, the drama that followed her with her former husband cost her. She would not be signed up for the next theater tour. Peg was devastated. And what's worse, the New York theater essentially blacklisted her, making her a pariah among the theater troops. Her dreams of a life on Broadway were now stripped from her forever. She returned to Los Angeles, thinking that being close to her family, she would quickly let go of the whole Robert Keith fiasco, but she eventually closed herself off from friends and family, and all could see she was having a difficult time recovering. A silver lining called out to her as she was invited to come back to the theater world. She was hired to play the ingenue across from Humphrey Bogart and Billy Burke in the production of The Mad Hopes, which premiered in May of 1931 in Los Angeles. It was received with much praise, and Peg was invited to reprise her role as it toured Broadway. It's said she even had a bit of a fling with co-star Bogart. And from her excellent reviews and talent from The Mad Hope, she was invited to RKO to play a role as Billy Burke's daughter, but the role was given away to Katherine Hepburn. Not to waste the potential talent they saw in Peg and Whistle, they offered her a one-movie contract. The movie chosen for her was titled 13 Women. It was produced and cast under the direction of RKO's David O. Selznick. With such a huge opportunity, Peg broke free of her theatrical contract for The Mad Hope, even while knowing this would probably be the last Hail Mary she would be given by the theatrical world with her name already tainted by her past, but believing this was her big break on the big screen, she thought it worth the gamble. She left her New York apartment leased by herself and a friend, and when her roommate could not afford the next month's rent, she was evicted and all of Peg's belongings were kept by the landlord. The stakes really were high for this film. The script was bizarre and the filming even more so. 
Even though she would be included with Hollywood greats like Irene Dunn and Myrna Loy, it was not enough to make a good film. Add insult to injury, Peg was shocked to discover her entire role, which was shot and revised and reshot, was reduced to only four minutes of screen time. In all fairness, the entire movie only clocked 59 minutes. And not having seen it, but read the storyline, 59 minutes might still have been a bit too long. Within two weeks, the close of the picture, RKO declined to extend Peg's contract. Two days after this devastating news, September 16, 1932, Peg would tell her uncle that she was going out for a walk and then meet up with some friends. 48 hours after Peg had failed to return home from her walk, the LAPD would have a report turned in from a woman hiking the hills just outside of Hollywood. She reported finding a woman's purse and jacket, and then as she looked around for a possible owner of the items, she spotted a body further down the hill. The caller, not wanting to reveal her name, told the officer she dropped the found items on the step outside of the police department. The police retrieved the items and searched, finding only a note inside the purse. It read, quote, I'm afraid I'm a coward. I am sorry for everything. If I had done this a long time ago, it would have saved a lot of pain, end quote. The note was signed with the initials P.E. Upon the discovery of her body, they believed her leap of death was far from painless and far from quick. Her pelvis was shattered upon impact, and as her body jostled down the hill, she obtained even more broken bones and internal bleeding, believing that relief would not come for several hours. The Hollywood sign was originally used as a real estate stunt, and it worked, but Peg's suicide would make the sign forever an icon and also add a few ghost stories to the legend. The New York Times reports on September 20, 1932, quote, Peg Entwistle dies in Hollywood Leap. Actress ends life by jumping off 50-foot sign after failure in the movies. On September 19th, police found at the foot of the gigantic electric letter H evidence of a movie land tragedy, the bruised body of a girl who failed, end quote. Her body would be cremated and the ashes would be sent back to Ohio to be buried beside her father. The movie 13 Women would premiere in New York at the Roxy Theater on October 14, 1932, a month after her death. Thank you for joining me, as always, for this week's episode of Bag of Bones. Stay tuned for part two and three of the tragic blonde bombshells as we cover those who gained immortality in the 1940s and then the 1950s. And thank you for joining me over on social media. I love seeing you there. And if you haven't left a five-star rating and review, what are you waiting for? How much more awesome do these episodes have to be? If you haven't left one, now seems like a pretty great time to me. I'm Elizabeth Bouchery. Until next week, then. Bag of Bones is created and hosted by Elizabeth Bougeret, produced by the Ragtag Network and History Revisited, music by Johnny Reed. To learn more about the show, visit elizabethbougeret.com. For more podcasts from the Ragtag Network, visit their website at www.ragtagnetwork.com. 
Copyrights by Elizabeth Bougeret and DCT Enterprises.